major section of this book, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul is showing the necessity of the gospel. Whenever you share the gospel with someone, the first thing you have to establish with them is that they're a sinner. That's where you start, and that's where Paul starts. And in chapter 1, verses 18 through the end of that chapter, he addresses the Gentile community, and the conclusion that he reaches in verse 20 is that you are without excuse. Because though you knew the truth through creation, you suppressed it and turned to idolatry and immorality. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, he addresses the religious community. And his conclusion is the very same. In verse 1, he says, you are without excuse. Because you sit with an unrepentant heart and you judge others on the basis of what you think you know. And Paul points out that you obviously don't really know how God judges. And so he lays out four principles of the way God judges. First of all, God judges according to truth. And you're doing the very same things. Secondly, God judges according to degrees. And your greater privilege just means that you have greater responsibility that will result in greater wrath. And thirdly, God judges according to deeds. What you know will not be the issue. The issue will be what you do. And fourthly, God judges without partiality. Nationality is not going to be the issue with God. Sin is going to be the issue. Now, when Paul establishes the guilt of the Gentile community, there are no objections. There's no defense. When you get to the end of chapter 1, there's just silence. And it's a silence of agreement. I think we as Gentiles would say, you painted a pretty good picture of our society. That's the reason when I was in Chicago, I enjoyed going down to Cook County Jail and speaking to the inmates there because I didn't have to spend a whole lot of time on point number one. You're guilty. But you know, when Paul establishes the guilt of the religious community, it's not received with silence. There's a defensive posture. There are some objections. And Paul is assuming that the Jew at this point will stand up and say, Objection, Your Honor. I am not guilty. I have a defense. And his defense would be to place into evidence Exhibit A and Exhibit B. What are the two prominent things that the Jew would depend on, would rest on for his security? What are the things that he would rely on to get him to heaven? Well, those two things would be the law and circumcision. And so what Paul does in the rest of chapter 2 is he sets up, you see, those are his two crutches. So what Paul does is he sets up those two crutches and then he kicks them out from under him. And just to make the application broader, because this really applies to every religious person, we'll call these two crutches religious revelation and religious ritual. Those are the two crutches that religious people lean on. Paul's going to set them up for us, and then he's going to kick, kick them out to show us that religion cannot save you. First crutch is religious revelation in verses 17 to 24. And under this heading, Paul gives us six characteristics of a religious person. And then he'll give us the seventh one, which is really point number two. First characteristic of a religious person. 
They depend on a label. Notice verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew, the Jew wore that name as a title of honor. It was a name that associated him with God's chosen people. In fact, the word Jew literally means praised. And for the Jew, this was his ticket into heaven. If you asked him, are you right with God? He would say, of course I am. I'm a Jew. There would not need to be any further discussion from his vantage point. Now, do we have people today that are like that? Sure we do. If you ask people today, are you a Christian? They'll say, well, of course I am. I'm Catholic. Of course I am. I'm Presbyterian. Of course I am. I'm Baptist. I'm Assembly of God. My grandparents were missionaries. Of course I'm a Christian. My uncle is a pastor. Religious people like labels. And there are a lot of labels today. Half of them, I don't know what they mean. I'm fundamentalist, I'm dispensationalist, I'm Calvinist, I'm Arminian, I'm charismatic, I'm full gospel. First characteristic of a religious person is he likes labels. I'm a church member. Don't talk to me about things. I'm already a member of a church. You've probably heard it said that going to church will make you a Christian about as much as going to a chicken house will make you a chicken. Or going to the Lions Club will make you a lion. Or going to the Rotary Club will make you a rotor. The first characteristic of a religious person is that they like labels. Second characteristic of a religious person, they rely on rules and regulations. Notice the second phrase in verse 17, and rely upon the law. Now, when Paul talks about the law here, he's probably not talking about just the Ten Commandments. He's talking about the first five books in the Old Testament, which we call the Pentateuch. The Jews called those five books the Torah. And the Jews took great pride in the fact that those books had been written by Moses and given to their nation. And so they thought just because they possessed those books that they were going to heaven. You know, Jesus said a very interesting thing to some Jews who thought that possessing the truth was enough. In John 5, 39, he said to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is these that bear witness of me and you do not come to me that you may not may have life. You see, having the scriptures is not enough because the scriptures are simply a signpost that point to Jesus. They were holding on to the signpost and not coming to Jesus. They were resting in the law. They were trusting in the law. They were hoping in the law. And a few verses later, Jesus says to them in John 5, 45, Moses, in whom you have set your hope, will be the one who accuses you. The very scriptures that you are relying on today will condemn you tomorrow. You see, they thought that having a Bible was enough to get them to heaven. Are there people like that today? Sure there are. You say, well, are you a Christian? And somebody says, sure I am. I own a Bible. It's on the coffee table at home. 
Haven't opened it in five years, but I've got one. Some people even brag about the translation they've got. Of course I'm going to heaven. I've got the King James Version. You see, you have to do more than own a Bible. You have to follow that Bible to the cross of Jesus Christ. Third characteristic of a religious person. They think they have special status with God. Notice the end of verse 17. And boast in God. Now the key word there is boast. Why do we boast? Why do we brag? Two reasons we brag. One is because we think we've got something that somebody else doesn't have. And secondly, we brag because we think we earned it or deserve it. And see, the problem with religion is that it always produces people who, despite what they say, it always produces people who really trust in themselves. What they have accomplished, what they have earned. And so religion will always lead to pride. And pride will always lead to presumption. So the Jew was saying, God likes us and doesn't like anybody else. We're in with God. Everybody else is outside looking in. You ever heard people who say, we're God's special group? Our denomination is the only true denomination. Everybody else is false. Well, that's a trait of religion. In fact, I find it very enlightening that when Jesus came, he had nothing to do with religion except to oppose it. It was the religious leaders who plotted to put him to death. When God wanted to announce the birth of Jesus, did he go to the priests? No. Where did he go? He went out into the fields and told some shepherds. When God wanted to pick somebody to announce the coming of Messiah, did he go find a religious leader? No. He went and got John the Baptist, who had spent his whole life in the wilderness. And when John came out to the Jordan River, he didn't come to Jerusalem, didn't come to the temple, came out to the Jordan River and preached there. And when the Jewish religious leaders came out to him, you remember what John said? John said, you are a brood of vipers. What's that mean? You're a bunch of snakes. And who's the first snake? Satan. You see, Jesus later clarified that statement in John 8. He said to the Jews, you are doing the deeds of your father. And their response was, we have one father, even God. And listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me. But you are of your father, the devil. The religious person takes pride in his special status with God when in reality he doesn't have any status with God. Fourth characteristic of a religious person. They claim to have a pipeline to God. Look at verse 18. And know his will. Underline the word know. The Jew would say, we know what God wants. We've got all the answers. You can give me a written test and I'll pass. But you know, the problem with that is that it's not enough to know God's will. You have to do God's will. I love David's prayer in Psalm 143.10. He says, teach me 
to do thy will, for thou art my God. Teach me not to know your will. Teach me to do your will. There's a world of difference between knowing God's will and doing God's will. And the characteristic of the religious person is that he's satisfied just to know it. Fifth characteristic. They hold to a very detailed moral standard. Notice the rest of verse 18. And approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law. Or literally it says you distinguish between the things that differ. You see, the Jew would say, I have discernment. I can discern between good and evil. I can discern between ethical and unethical. I can even discern between good and better. But you know, with all his emphasis on the details, his problem was that he overlooked the fundamentals. And again, I think of the words of Jesus in Matthew 23, 23. He said, you tithe mint and dill and cumin. Now, those things are herbs. What, what he's saying to them is, you actually get your spice rack out and you give 10% of your spices to God. You're very detailed about what you're doing. But he says this, even though you tithe those spices, you have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You're getting the little details down and you're missing the fundamentals. And then in the next verse, Jesus says, yeah, you're discerning. Here's how discerning you are. And he says that familiar phrase, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. You're getting the details and you're missing the substance. See, religious people are big on little things. And then the sixth characteristic of a religious person, they have a condescending attitude toward others. Notice verses 19 and 20. And you are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in the darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. Now the problem with the Jewish person, as he describes him here, is his attitude. They were saying, we're the teachers, we're the guides, everybody else is blind and foolish and immature, everybody else is just stupid. Have you ever known anybody who was a religious snob? Don't look around. Have you ever known anybody who was a religious know-it-all? Have you ever known anybody who wanted to show you how much Bible they had under their belt? who take great pride in correcting you. They love to quote a verse at you, not to help you, but to impress you. They have a condescending attitude. See, that condescending attitude is a characteristic of a religious person. And listen to me carefully. Get this if you don't get anything else today. If your faith makes you feel superior to other people, if your faith makes you put other people down, then you have religion rather than a relationship. I like what Billy Graham says. He says evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. Now, I'm not better than anybody else. I just happen to stumble on the kitchen. And I ought to want to share that 
with other people. One of the things that has become apparent to me over the years is that there are a lot of know-it-alls out there who take their Bible and they hit people over the head with it and then they claim or they complain about being persecuted. You know some people like this? They're out there slamming people with their Bible and then they're complaining, I'm suffering for Jesus. And I want to say to them, you're not suffering for Jesus. You're suffering for being obnoxious. You see, there's a condescending attitude that has no place in our lives when we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. One of my primary goals as a pastor is to teach you how to be Christians without being religious. And that is one of the deep desires of my heart is to teach you how to be a believer, how to be turned on, how to love Christ, how to be spirit-filled without being a kook. I mean, if, if you want a church that teaches you how to be pious, don't stay here because that's not my goal. I don't want you to be pious. I want you to be real in a relationship with Jesus Christ. There are too many Christians who are pious and they end up with a condescending attitude toward other people. One of the things that stands out to me when I read the Gospels is that Jesus was completely spiritual and, let, and yet perfectly natural. Did you get that over that crying baby? Who was that? <laughs> Jesus was completely spiritual, but at the same time, he was perfectly natural. And that's why when you read the Gospels, you find out that everybody was comfortable around him, except one group of people, and that was the religious hypocrites. Jesus could sit down and have a meal with prostitutes, lepers, tax collectors, all of the rejects of society, and they were comfortable with him. And why were they comfortable with him? Because he was perfectly natural, although he was completely spiritual. I want to be like Jesus, and I want you to be like Jesus too. You see, the religious person makes people uncomfortable because he has a condescending attitude. And one of the things that makes him brash and confident and condescending in his attitude is summed up at the end of verse 20. It says, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. The Jew would say, I've got the law, I've got it all. I've got the law, I'm better than you. That was the Jewish crutch. And so Paul, having set up this crutch, is now going to kick it out from under him. And he's going to do that simply by asking five questions. The first question is in verse 21. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You take great pride in being a teacher, but you haven't taught yourself. In other words, you don't practice what you preach. All of those claims in verses 17 to 20 are just hot air. In fact, if you look at his claims in verses 17 to 20, there's no action in any of them. You rely on, boast in, know, approve, guide, correct, teach. Now, all those things are related to what part of the body? The mouth. So a religious person is mouthy. What are they doing? Nothing. See, there's ten statements that I count here. These ten statements that the Jew made, he thought made him ten times better than the Gentile 
when the truth is that it made him ten times more deserving of condemnation because there was no substance to his claims. He knew, but he didn't obey. He had the law, but the law didn't have him. And then Paul gets more specific with his second question. He says in verse 21 again, You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? See, the Jew was pointing the finger at the Gentile, claiming that he was breaking one of the commandments. He was stealing, and Paul makes it personal. What about you? You know, we do a lot of things that we don't necessarily call stealing, but fall in the same category. Do you take time from your employer that you shouldn't take? Do you take things home from the office that you didn't, don't deserve? Do you, did you ever misrepresent a used automobile? Did you ever uh, steal by overcharging people? Did you ever put the wrong amount on your income tax return? See, all those things are stealing probably heard about the guy who wrote the letter to the IRS. He said, gentlemen, enclosed you will find a check for $150. I cheated on my income tax return last year and haven't been able to sleep ever since. If I still have trouble sleeping, I'll send you the rest. <laughs> See, that standard, you shall not steal, is one that we need to take a personal look at before we judge other people. Third question, verse 22, you who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? See, there's more than one way to commit adultery. Jesus made that clear to us. You can outright commit adultery or you can lust in your heart so much that you do the equivalent in your heart. And then there's a fourth question at the end of verse 22. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, the Jews were adamantly opposed to idolatry. The, the very thought of idolatry made them angry, and so Paul could say, you actually abhor idolatry. But then he asked the question, do you rob temples? Do you do something just as bad? Now, we're not sure what he's talking about here. There are a couple possible options. One would be that in some way he's referring to pagan temples, and so while they're abhorring the idolatry, they are somehow pilfering money out of those Gentile temples. Maybe they own the property and they're renting it out. They're getting money out of what's going on there while they're standing to the side condemning what's happening. Or a second option would be that he's talking here about the Jewish temple. And you remember in Jesus' day when he came to the temple and found that they were selling animals to the worshipers to make money off of that, and at that time, Jesus made a whip and ran them out, and he said, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, and you are making it a robber's den. The point is, while they were condemning the Gentiles for idolatry, they were doing the same thing. And then just in case they haven't got it in the first four questions, he spells it out in the fifth question. Verse 23, you who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? You see, you have broken the very law that you boast in. This crutch that you lean so heavily on has been knocked out from under you. And so Paul says, with all your boasting, that fails to support you because rather than drawing you closer to God, he says you are actually 
dishonoring God? Do you dishonor God? And he doesn't wait for the answer to that question. He answers it himself in verse 24. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. That's a quote from Isaiah 52, 5. And if you go back to Isaiah 52, 5, you'll find that that was at a time when the Jews were going into captivity in Babylon. And the Gentiles were looking on and saying, those are supposed to be God's people. What kind of God would let his people go into slavery? And Paul is saying, the Gentiles are saying the same thing about you when they see your lives. You're saying, I'm a Jew, I know God, I know his will, I have his law, and they see that your life is no different than theirs. You steal, you commit adultery, you rob temples, you break the law, you're a hypocrite. And so the Gentile is saying, what kind of God do they have? You know, if I went over here to the piano and told you that I would like to play a composition by Chopin. And then I began to play, and I don't play the piano. So I began to play abstract music. If Chopin could speak up, he would say, please don't mention me. Some of us say, I'm God's person. And the composition of our life makes no sense. And God is standing in the background saying, don't mention my name. The Jew was carrying the banner of God, and in doing so by his lifestyle, he was dishonoring God. And so the Jew's first objection here is, I'm not guilty because I've got the law. And Paul's response is, the law only acts to condemn you because you haven't kept it. And then there's a second crutch, and that's religious ritual in verses 25 to 29. This is also the seventh characteristic of a religious person. They rely on rituals. And for the Jew, the fundamental ritual was circumcision. Circumcision was the cutting off of the male foreskin. It was to happen at the age of eight days. It was a sign of the covenant relationship that they had with God, that God had made with Abraham. And this was a sign. It was no different than the sign of the rainbow that established the Noahic covenant. It's no different than the sign of a wedding ring that establishes the covenant between a man and a woman. It was an important sign, but it was really a sign of a deeper reality. And what the Jew had done is he had grabbed hold of the sign and left the reality behind. He had the sign of the, of the circumcision and he held it up as his key to getting to heaven, but he had ignored the reality of it. In fact, I came across some quotes from Jewish scholars. Here's what they said about circumcision. Our rabbis have said that no circumcised man will ever see hell. Circumcision saves from hell. God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised should be sent to hell. Abraham sits before the gate of hell and does not allow that any circumcised Israelite should enter there. Now that sounds like a pretty big crutch. And so Paul assumes that Jewish objection. I'm not guilty, I've been circumcised. And so what he does in these verses is he gives us four principles and then a definition of true circumcision. 
And if you want to make the application today, you can make the application to any religious ritual. Baptism, communion, confirmation, you pick it. Whatever ritual that people tend to rely on and have ignored the reality. Here's the four principles. First principle, ritual with reality is of value. Verse 25, for indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law. Now some people have the idea that all rituals are bad things. That's not the case. Some of the rituals are God-given. Circumcision was God-given. Baptism is God-given. Communion is God-given. And those things are of great value if you have the commitment to go with them. That's the first principle. Ritual with reality is of value. Second principle, ritual without reality is of no value. Look at the rest of verse 25. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. See, that's the equivalent of telling a young lady, your wedding ring is an honorable thing if you're faithful to your husband. But if you're an adulteress, then that ring is just a piece of metal. It's not enough to say, honey, I know I didn't come home last night, but I've still got your ring on. No, the symbol without the reality is useless. I was baptized when I was 12 years old. I had some wonderful words said over me. I was baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But you know what? There was no spiritual reality in my life at that time. So that baptism had just as much value as my Saturday night bath. It meant nothing. That ritual means nothing if there's no reality behind it. And then the third principle, reality without ritual is sufficient. Notice verse 26. If therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? That's real simple. You can be right with God without the ritual if you've got the reality. You see, Jesus didn't say to the thief on the cross, you need to be circumcised. He didn't say to the thief on the cross, you need to be baptized. He didn't say, sorry, man, you missed the Last Supper. No, he said what? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Because reality without ritual is sufficient. And then the fourth principle, the person with reality and no ritual will condemn the person with ritual and no reality. Verse 27, and will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? Now this one had to really gall the Jew because what Paul is saying is that the Jew will one day be judged by the Gentile because ritual is not the bottom line reality is which brings Paul to his definition of a Jew in verses 28 and 29 a true Jew here's what it is now this is an important question because this is a hot topic a hot debate in Israel today who is a Jew and who isn't 
And some people say that the answer is on the basis of religion. A Jew is one who has a kosher kitchen and keeps the Old Testament law. But you know, the problem with that definition is there's a lot of Jewish people who have Jewish heritage and Jewish culture who are atheists, who don't fit into that category. They would say you define a Jew by his race. It's not religion, it's race. You have to have Jewish ancestry. Problem with that is, what do you do with people who have converted to Judaism? So there's a lot, a lot of debate today about who is a true Jew. Here's God's definition of a true Jew in verses 28 and 29. Notice what he says. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. Paul says it's not outward, it's inward. It's not in the flesh, it's of the heart. It's not by the letter, it's by the Spirit. You see, God says that being a Jew is not a ritual, it's not a race, it's not a custom, it's not a religion, it's in your heart. And that's not a new definition. God has been saying this all along. When Moses came down from the mountain with the second set of tablets, he said this in Deuteronomy 10, 16, circumcise then your hearts and stiffen your neck no more. The Lord said through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 9, 25, I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. For all the nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised you see, the, re the reality is that circumcision is not an outward ritual that means anything to God. The issue is, have you had your heart cut? Have you had your heart changed? Has the Spirit of God penetrated your heart with the truth of God's Word and with that sword cut your heart? See, that's the issue. And so he closes this verse 29 with an interesting phrase. He says, and his praise is not from men but from God. That's really a pun because I told you earlier the word Jew means praise. And so Paul says, don't seek the praise of men who only see the external. Seek the praise of God who sees the heart. And so the second Jewish objection is, I'm not guilty, I've got circumcision. And Paul's response is, a physical sign without the spiritual reality is useless. You know, another way to ask this question is, what makes you a child of God? Who is a Christian? Who is saved? See, it's not the person who is confirmed or baptized or takes the Lord's Supper or, or who has joined the church. It's not the person who's trying to keep the Ten Commandments. It's the person who has his faith in Jesus Christ, who has God's revelation not just in his head, but in his heart and who has God's rituals, not just as an external thing, but as an internal thing, not by the letter, but by the Spirit. You see, the bottom line of this section is religion can't save you. It doesn't matter what brand you are, Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, Hindu, Mormon, religion has never saved anybody. So let me just close by asking you a couple personal questions. You don't have to answer out loud. Question number one, what are you trusting in to get you to heaven? Are you trusting in the fact that you know a few Bible verses? Are you trusting in the fact that you have a Christian heritage? 
Are you trusting in the fact that you're on a membership role of a church somewhere? Are you trusting in the fact that one time way back you were baptized and you have a certificate at home somewhere to prove it? See, the issue with God is not religion. The issue with God is a relationship. And so the question is, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? And if not, I want to invite you today to give your heart to Him, to open your heart to Him today. If you are a believer, I have a second question for you. Is it possible that somebody around you is being turned off to becoming a Christian by your lifestyle? You know, Peter said in 1 Peter 2.15, live in such a way that you may silence the critics. Live reality in your life so your very lifestyle will silence those who want to criticize. Why not say a prayer with me today? And that prayer is, Lord, help me to be intensely spiritual and yet perfectly natural. That's what I want to be, and that's what I want to see for you. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back, and we're going to close by singing again that song, Oh, Lord, You're Beautiful. It's got a line in it that says, Your face is all I seek. And that's the bottom line. Religion means nothing. It's a relationship with Him. Let's sing this as our closing prayer this morning. I don't know how God has spoken to your heart, but as we stand and sing together, I'm going to invite you to come forward with whatever need you have today. There may be some here who want to join this fellowship. You come as well. But if God has spoken to you today, you respond to His call as we sing in closing, Oh, Lord, you're beautiful. <laughs>